This content is issued by Zeus Capital Limited, which is authorised and regulated in the United Kingdom by the Financial Conduct Authority for Designated Investment Business and is a member firm of the London Stock Exchange. Nothing in this podcast should be viewed as investment advice. Listeners should consult an investment professional before making any decisions regarding topics mentioned in this podcast. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not of Zeus. Please note that participants in this podcast may have financial interests in the matters discussed. It's Thursday, 8th of December. With me today, I have Bobby Vidral. Bobby has had an illustrious career in financial markets. After a year in the German army, Bobby joined Deutsche Bank. Roles at Unicredit and Goldman Sachs followed, with Bobby leaving Goldman Sachs as a partner in the securities division. Bobby is now a portfolio manager at Tosca Fund Management, in London. He also has a highly regarded side hustle with the Macro Eagle, a monthly newsletter for financial market professionals on geopolitics and market strategy. Bobby, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for joining us today. Uh, can we start with a bit of your background and maybe a bit of your journey? Yeah, sure. So uh, we are, as a family, we're Germans, but from South America. So I grew up in Chile and Bolivia. And then uh, after growing up down there, I came to the uh, Germany, German army. And then I uh, left the German army because this was 92. The Soviet Union had just collapsed and it re- didn't really make too much sense uh, or the, there was no sense of threat anymore. And uh, so I studied in Spain. And then after that, I worked in London. The original idea was uh, to train. This was 97 to train in London and move to South America to trade. But as you can probably remember, it was the emerging market mm-hmm. crisis. Yep. Everybody got fired. And so uh, the only guys who didn't get fired were the guys in derivatives. So, so I thought, okay, I joined the derivatives team, and the, the rest is history. Um, I basically last 25 years, uh, always London, always in derivatives, in banking, and yes, as you said, I, I joined the buy side about two years ago. Are you enjoying the buy side? Loving it, absolutely loving it. I think it's also a cycle thing. I think banking is great to learn, because uh, obviously you have to deal with a lot of client issues and problems, and, and you have to solve them. But, uh, but I think there comes the stage where you want to move from being uh, a you know, property uh, broker to be a property investor. And, uh, and uh, to be honest, uh, yeah, absolutely love the buy side. And then how did uh, Macro Eagle, um, how was that born? Well, Macro Eagle, so at Goldman, I, would, uh, I was a partner running the strats. And uh, the strats have various functions from you know, uh, structuring to risk uh, to, to systematic strategies, etc., and one of my um, tasks was to always speak and inform the traders about risks I thought thought were there, and uh, same thing with our you know investor clients, hedge funds, CIOs. And when I left Goldman in eighteen, I knew I had a you know I'm going to have a, a period off, and people asked me if I could continue with these monthly views I would always be sending out, and I thought yeah absolutely, but obviously this time I added jokes. Mm-hmm. which is probably where most people start reading Mark Regal nowadays. They start from the bottom. Uh, and the point was a little bit is because obviously I think research nowadays is so boring, uh, like compliance takes out so much fun, that, that I thought I'd put the jokes in. And, and the other thing, you notice a bit that the, the format of it is, is written ultimately for traders or investors because it's very short. Because that's exactly, you know, I, 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 I don't really like the, you know, pages and pages of, of thought. So... Yeah, so I sent this out at the beginning to about uh, you know fifty guys, and it uh, grew, uh, grew exponentially from there. Oh, fantastic! I've read a couple of episodes or a couple of uh, issues, and uh, I love being on the list. Um, as we have you here today, maybe what we could do is sort of run through some macro themes for twenty twenty three. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I think um, if one thinks of the year ahead, I mean, or, or the way how I think about things is uh, first, I always start uh, top down, uh, you know, where are we in the cycle? And for me, there are, there are various cycles. Um, one is the financial one. This is, you know, the one we see often every 10 years. Uh, markets go, you know, go into a bit, some kind of bear market. And then we're obviously in a bear market. And the question is, what kind of bear market we are in? But then the second cycle is the social political one. Social political one is a little bit how we think politically and how we think socially about our um, yeah, way of life. And if you think about it after the war, you know, we politically, uh, we were very much... Uh, big state because we needed to rebuild Europe. Socially, we we're very conservative. Then in the 60s, 70s, we flipped to um, from a political perspective into more liberal and, and the same thing on the social. And then in the, in the, uh, certainly in the, in the 80s, that then got uh, with Thatcher and Reagan very clear. And the key thing is we are, I think we're now in a transition towards back towards the belief in a, in a bigger state that obviously has a, a lot mm -hmm. of implications um, and, and clearly a, a break from the last 40 years. And the problem is, I think, people like us who have been in the markets for a while, you know, financial cycles we're accustomed to, social political cycles we're not, because we normally will only see one change in our lifetime. And so I think people are very slow to um, uh, adjust to that. And this matters because I personally believe the next decade will be fundamentally different from the last um, because of those social political uh, changes and this increasing importance of state and, and various um, things that are playing out already. Um, and then the last cycle, the third cycle, is the geopolitical one. The geopolitical one really is long date, like 80 to 100 years. It more has to do with who is the main reserve currency, the main, main reserve power. It obviously was Britain in the 19th century, then the U.S. Uh, in the 80s, obviously, shortly with for a short time, we thought Japan would be at uh, Paris-Passu with the U.S., but obviously that's gone. And but now the question is like, okay, will um, you know, will this dollar dominance and the U.S. dominance continue, or will this be actually a bipolar or, or multipolar uh, world? And I think that matters because certainly. So if you think about it, certain events have always shaped a decade. So if you think about it in whatever, if for the 90s, it was the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91, and it was uh, Maastricht, the creation of the euro. And if you, if you got that trend right, that's all you had to do that in that decade. Yeah. Then if you think about it in the 2000s, the key things was China entering the WTO. And obviously, Jim O'Neill saw this very yeah. early, very yeah, correctly, yeah. and BRICS, and that was the 2000 trade. And then on the side... Geopolitically, we had 9/11. Now it matters because it, it it matters because it doesn't matter for finance. That's the key thing. It separated really national security from finance, and and this almost that we were living in parallel worlds. And if you think this is merging back together, national security and finance after 20 years, but again, then came to obviously the 2010s. Very the critical thing was the financial crisis. Financial crisis created monetary policy, very important impact. Effectively, asset price inflation. Fiscal policy created austerity, created populism. And also, I would argue that the, the financial crisis, um, the West lost a bit the respect from the East. Mm -hmm. Basically, you can't even manage your own house. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and you see, certainly since the financial crisis, the tension has risen with China, with Russia, with everybody who anyways was already unhappy about Western dominance is like, okay, now we're coming. And I think now for the 2020s, the key episodes was really is COVID and Ukraine. 
And what are, I think, the implications? Well, COVID, number one, is clearly uh, in, uh, we have industrial policy back. Remember, in, in Europe, we did not have industrial policy. We, it's coming big time. Uh, now, this is very important because COVID in industrial policy and, and, and the return to supply chain security effectively are moving from just-in-time economics, which we really have been running since the 80s, to just-in-case. That's inflationary. But also it tells you is that, you know, friend-shoring, all this kind of thing becomes very important. And, uh, and I think this has very important implications for supply chains, how you invest. And industrial policy, I, I personally think, in the decade ahead, um, what used to be the Fed put over the last 10 years will be the fiscal put. So mm -hmm. if, if, if you know what the government wants to push, that's a safe bet from a downside perspective. Um, then um, uh, uh, Ukraine obviously has uh, key implications, again, very direct one from an investment point of view for, for defense, which if you think about it, it puts now a big, we will really have to rethink ESG, right? Because ESG, uh, if you combine it with the whole passive investment, the easiest thing was to just put into the code of your passive fund. It's like, okay, no defense, no, uh, no tobacco, no, uh, you no know, fossil oil. fuels, yeah. exactly. So this will clearly have to rethinking because, you know, what's the point of uh, having all <laughs> these great stuff if, if you can't defend your own go system of government? And so I think, uh, and then obviously Ukraine has a massive implications with the sanctions on Russia, on the reserves. Because, uh, you know, few people, I think, understand that our, um, our monetary system is actually quite young. I mean, we really only have floating exchange rates since the 70s. Uh, and uh, and it was a it was a dollar based system, but also based on the trust that you could always get your dollars. And if you think about it, if you're now some emerging market, absolutely you know normal, uh, you know let's call it Brazil with you know 500 billion of reserves, and your dollars can get confiscated because maybe somebody thinks that you should be paying reparations for the rainforest, which you know might be a view or not, but as a state you can't allow that. So 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 what we will see, and we see this already, people will be buying gold, people will diversify away from uh, G7 currencies. So yeah, so I think the decade ahead, because of these mega trends, uh, and uh, will be very different to the decade ahead. My starting point is any everything that worked in the last decade, you have to be careful of. So what has worked in the last decade is obviously, you know, the key trade was to be long US, long uh, effectively long growth, um, short vol, and uh, long duration. And I think all that you have to be careful of now. Uh, so effectively, I'm, I'm, and obviously I'm biased here because this is, you know, the portfolio we're managing, but we're managing it out of personal conviction, not because we think, oh, this is a great marketing story. Mm -hmm. Personal convictions, yeah, we're looking, you know, investing in Europe, uh, because it has been literally completely ignored over the last 10 years. Um, but in a world where literally we're having reshoring, friendshoring, and, and, uh, and an aging population, if you think Europe has always been very good at health. And I also think the last decade was a lot about digital disruption. The next decade is about digital implementation. Now, if you think about it, we, in Europe, we actually have a lot of industrial and manufacturing and uh, expertise. We, we just wrongly thought that all we had to keep in Europe was the design and we let the manufacturing happen outside. But now this clearly, this Ukraine and COVID has clearly reversed that thinking completely. And so I do think very interesting opportunities. The only thing is in Europe, you have to be, you know, uh, uh, obviously aware that um, 
that yeah, I would say European companies grow from two to twenty billion, or mm-hmm. from you know they don't grow like that's it's more American the ones who go from twenty to two hundred. So I think the the, the mid cap sector is the interesting one in Europe. Um, uh, but like big picture, I think um, if we go through the, um, if the different time zones, clearly in the U.S., I think the focus will shift from the Fed and inflation to growth. And I, I don't think the market is pricing that in at all at the moment. When do you think that might happen? Well, it's, never, it's never a moment, but all I'm saying is that, um, that I think the, the... I mean, if you look at the market at the moment, it's a bit weird because the bond market, the, you know, the yield curve is inverted, is effectively telling you recession. Yeah. And it has been inverted for a while now, um, so this is actually important. I mean, it's not, you know, that, you know, normally when the curve inverts for five days, everybody gets excited, but, you know, this is properly inverted for... For a long time now, so that implies normally that recession is between you know between twelve and eighteen months away, and you know given when the inversion started, well, that would be then middle of next year. The interesting thing though is the equity market is telling you it's all good because you know yep. if you look at the earnings per share, it's like you know five to eight percent up next year, and then people will say, oh, well, that's inflation because obviously earnings are nominal, so you know, well. But then, if you look at the inflation break-even market, it's implying, you know, the one-year, one-year is implying like 2.5% next year. I mean, so the inflation market is telling you it's going back. So somebody's wrong here. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and I do think at the moment the market is priced too much for almost a perfect soft landing or mild recession and all, all fine. And I think there is clearly, um, uh, you know, a, a margin compression risk now. Uh, I was just now at, a, at, an, at, an, uh, at, an, at an equity conference, um, which was very interesting because literally completely unrelated companies were all telling, uh, as one of the actually interesting findings to investors, in, it was interesting because they were re- trying to reassure investors about revenues. Mm-hmm. And they said, literally all of them, it said, well, we, we actually never had inflation clauses in our contracts. And now we have put inflation clauses into our contracts. And you think, okay, that's very interesting because that means that they actually couldn't uh, hike prices in the last uh, year, but they will do so now going forward. So, so I do think inflation is stickier than people think because I think it has it's nothing to do just with the supply chain disruptions. There are really structural issues with inflation. Um, I suppose the labor market and energy must be you know, causing, causing companies such a concern at the moment. They they do, but um, but if it's just energy and labor, it could be a short-term issue. But I do think inflation is structurally here uh, because you know we if you think about what were the drivers of disinflation, well number one it was Eastern Europe opening, yeah right I mean that gave a huge cost reduction opportunity especially to German industry. Second was China opening. Yep. Uh, and and again, China is now in a, in a, you know wages are clearly increasing on the on the east coast. So China is not anymore the cheap uh, country. Then you have uh, technology, but it doesn't get lower than zero. And in theory, if you think about it, you know everybody's very excited about Web three. The nice, interesting thing about Web three is you own the data. So what? And suddenly, big tech has to pay you for your data. I mean, so all I'm saying is the prices are going up. Yeah. So I, I do think that 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 uh, inflation and and by the way we are aging and this is I think very important um, that well we have always been aging 
so what should what, what what's the amazing thing now well it's the inflection point because we we the bulge of the wealth is owned by uh, obviously the boomers and the boomers are now retired and this is now the big question so what you do is you save into retirement but what do you do once retired and i honestly think the covid crisis uh, you know we see this in the in the many people who have not returned to employment mm-hmm. If people just now take a decision to to enjoy their life, so yeah. I actually think they will spend yeah. rather than save yeah. until they die and pass everything to the yeah. kids. Yeah. So I, I do think that uh, structurally um, inflation will be high, and then obviously the question is now if will you know central banks adjust to that, right? Will they just say okay the inflation target will now get risen three four percent? I'm I'm I'm. I, I do think there's a reasonable chance uh, that we will next year have this realization. Hold on a second. Inflation is actually higher. Uh, margins, I mean, unless they pass it through, which I don't think they will be able to because I actually do think we have a risk of social unrest going up. Um, um, the question will then be what will central banks do? And I think next year we will have this overlap. So I definitely believe that in the U.S., uh, Powell uh, doesn't will not want to go down in history as Richard Burns. Mm-hmm. And so he will be hard on, on, on this. And, and then the question is, what happens if b- still by being hard, inflation doesn't really go down to 2%? And that's, that then opens the next discussion. But I don't think that they will just suddenly uh, you know, w- jump off and stop their hiking just because the market is weak. Um, uh, I mean, so in, in I mean, but can they continue to do 50s? I mean, do you think that's what will happen? I'm obviously they're suggesting they do 50 in December and then maybe look at... Uh, beginning to scale it down, but I mean, what's what's your yeah, thought? No, look, I, I I actually do think. I mean, he, Powell actually said it. Uh, it's just nobody listens. He says um, he said um, effectively focus less on the, uh, the, 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 the 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 timing, focus more on the peak and how long the peak will stay. Because yeah. I think that's the key thing. And uh, and I personally look. I, I think what is very important is you need to ask yourself what kind of bear market are you in. For me, there are three bear markets. There is the, the technical bear market, which gets triggered by some technical issue. Let's say 87. Yeah. These, these things are sharp, hard, but go back fast. Then you have systemic bear markets. And the key thing, like 08, is like the state really worries about the survival of the system, in which case the state throws everything at it, which they did. Which is, again, good, actually. Mm-hmm. What we now have is a very healthy, normal deflation of inflationary asset price market. So, so um, it's actually nobody's work. Like what I'm saying is, um, if you look at it, it's actually an incredibly orderly bear market. You know, it started 18 months ago with China Tech, big tech. Yeah. It then moved on to SPAC, MEMS, all the speculative mm-hmm. things. Then it went to duration, uh, you know, yeah. late last year. Then it got into big tech. Currently, we're seeing it already in real estate. You know, the early birds uh, are already showing it, like Sweden, Canada, New Zealand, all the inflated markets. But I I do think it will continue, but in an orderly fashion. And then the next one is clearly, I mean, I do think private equity will uh, uh, also be now forced to remark. uh, They obviously always have a lack of like 12 to 18 months. Uh, That also was what saved them in 2009. And again, it was a systemic crisis. They stayed through everything at it. And by the time they would have to mark down, they didn't. I mean, they can have to sort of remark their own mental view of cost of cost of capital, I think, really, which for the last 15 years, they've had they've had very cheap capital. And I guess that has to change now as well. Absolutely. I mean, and I think 
I think in the decade ahead, differentiation will be key. Um, and in fact, if you think about it, in the, in the last decade, because of zero interest rates, it's all, it was all about beta. Yep. You know, it was all about beta. Like, you know, just, just own a passive fund, be long, thank you very much. In the next world, with high interest rates, uh, you know, inflation, uh, it brings differentiation back. Um, and, uh, and, you know, for example, in private equity, it may, it's going to make now a huge difference if you are a private equity who improves the company through operational change or through financial leverage. Yeah. And I have to say, I mean, even though everybody speaks about operational change, actually most people did financial leverage. And so we will see now, um, you know, as Baron Buffett always says, you know, when the tide goes out, we will see who swims naked. Um, I, I think we're going to see this. But again, it's nothing kind of systemic. This is just going, it's, it's, in, in this, it's in actually an incredibly orderly bear market. And look, last month was just the latest proof. I mean, mm -hmm. we had one of the biggest frauds in US history. Yeah. And the market was up 5%, yeah. Europe even 10 almost. Uh, so so, uh, so uh, I do think it's, uh, you could almost call it the recession of the 1%, which is correct. Because, uh, you know, the last decade was clearly the combination of zero interest rate benefited capital, austerity hit labor. Yeah. So actually capital did very good. And that spread is going to compress again. And I think that's going to be one of the driving themes for the next decade. And crypto into the next decade, as you just sort of alluded to, to the largest financial scam we've seen for a long time? Well, look, I think, you know, crypto, I'm a big fan of the underlying technology, blockchain. I also think Web3, uh, you know, I mean, if that uh, stack uh, gets created, it's very uh, interesting. The problem with crypto is you have far too many people who actually don't understand what it is about. Uh, and uh, for me, it was always very funny. I mean, I've, you know, various uh, friends who, who, who got very excited by it. And, and you notice when you start asking technical questions to them, like, but, but what I mean is like they're really excited, they're really telling you it's like, you know, the, and you start asking them technical questions and when you then get the answer of saying, look, Bobby, you either get it or you don't, then you know that there's a bubble. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know I'm, 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 a, I'm a firm believer in, you know, two physicists, one Feynman, Rich Feynman, he once said, uh, if, you, if, if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't. Right, so you have to yeah. always have to be humble. We actually don't understand anything. But then the second thing was Einstein, who I think, I think said something like, uh, you know, if you can't explain it to a four-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. Yeah. So I think it's always this humbleness of being aware that you know, we don't understand, but at the same time, okay, you need to be able to, you know, at least understand the core. And I, I, and I, and I think here many people don't get that. Um, so, so again, you know, I think you know what FTX showed is, you know, it's. On that point, it's more about this uh, regulation thing, you know, that regulation is actually not so much about technology, it's about humans. Mm. Then it also showed you a lot about hubris, right? It's like, I mean, the guy was sitting there with presidents on things, and, and this, 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 this human, for some odd, uh, almost desire to have these super thing, like these, these, these you know, elite, smart uh, people, which normally tend to always be wrong. Um, and uh, and uh, so I, I, as I said, technology I believe uh, definitely in. I think it will be more disruptive for really kind of white collar standard jobs like you know legal accounting, mm -hmm. back and middle office. I mean, there's huge potential there for that. Currency for me is a different topic, and the reason here is because uh, currency has a lot to do also with power. 
and uh, and uh, while obviously um, you know some you know you know frontier or emerging market countries might uh, need uh, um, a third currency to run their country, which they already do because many of them have the dollar. I really don't see how the state is going to let. Uh, uh, currency power uh, get away from them because currency power ultimately is the power to tax mm -hmm. and and if you say well if it's decentralized and the state won't be able to tax you it's like okay so what's the point of being rich if the state can't defend you and if then the answer is like well and everybody for themselves on some kind of you know and, and we go back into city states uh, uh, in, in the medieval times then I, I have to say those weren't very pretty times uh, you know so one has to be very bit careful of what one wishes for because I think that's the interesting thing of many of the you know uh, hardcore crypto onistas, their their um, you know anti-government uh, libertarian. Uh, it's like, so so what's the answer then? Because uh, if the answer is as I said, you know everybody, you know this this concept of individual sovereignty and 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 city states. Well, we had that once. It was called the Middle Ages, and it yeah. was pretty ugly. <laughs> yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and then. You know, does the dollar have to stay strong for, for you know, the foreseeable future? I mean, obviously, if rates are going to continue to, to rise, then obviously the dollar seems to be in quite a strong position. But obviously, I would have thought that that sort of maybe is impinging some form of emerging market growth. I mean, what's your view? Yeah, the, the problem with the dollar is that obviously, and this is something that... So if you think about it, when Adam Smith created economics, he called it political economy. The problem is we separated the political part from economics. Because to be honest, the economists, they just would love to be seen as like physicists or mathematicians, when in reality they're not, right? They're social scientists and it's a complete inexact science. What happens by taking politics away, you take the key concept away, which is the concept of power. Now, economists don't like power because they can't measure it. That's why it's not being incorporated. But to you, and the reason I'm saying this is because, well, how can you think about the dollar without the concept of power? Because obviously, in the, if we get into a situation of risk off or really geopolitical tension, and we are obviously you know, in clearly a very uh, geopolitical high-intensity time, then obviously the dollar will always be bid. Right? I mean, yep. it is the ultimate place where you can park your money and be safe. I mean, the U.S. will not be overrun. And if the U.S. gets overrun, you know what? It's, it's game over for yeah. everybody anyway. Yeah. So there will always be a natural bid for the dollar if we have geopolitical tensions, which we currently have. Now, so assuming we take geopolitics away, then I would say, actually, yeah, the dollar from here will weaken because, you know, we have had um, clearly the marginal aggressiveness on the Fed side, and it's almost the others need to catch up. I mean, you see this, obviously, the biggest distortions currently with the yen. Uh, the BOJ not being, um, not being, uh, uh, you know, f you know, following a policy that is pretty inflationary and 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 will have to probably not be able to keep so separate. So from here, I do think that um, that probably the dollar will weaken, assuming we have no geopolitical issue. Okay, okay. And then if we move a bit further east and, and maybe have a talk about China, and there's been a lot of discussion about China reopening, but that doesn't seem to be happening. What's your thoughts there? Well, the first thing with China is I always find it uh, fascinating when I speak with uh, macro investors who invest, or any investor who invest in China, but they seem to know more names of Greek ministers than of Chinese. I mean, literally, apart from Xi Jinping and uh, you know Li Qiang now or Li Qiang before, very few can even name you the seven members of the Politburo. 
And uh, that's a bit odd, no? because uh, to be honest, it just tells you that, again, we are making this mistake of purely focusing on things we can measure, like economics, but less on politics because we can't measure it. Uh, and obviously, they're making an active. The key question with China is obviously, again, you know, I, I, I always start at the big picture. Like, you know, China is now a $15 trillion economy. Uh, the U.S. is 20. Um, China cannot continue growing like Japan or Germany did via exports. So China will need to transform to a consumption-driven economy. So if I was investing in China, I would definitely look at the consumption uh, side rather than the export side. Um, the problem, though, is no country has ever made that transition from export to consumption-driven economy. But again, it's not a choice. They have to. Because you know, if they continue growing and become as big as the U.S., what are they going to export to? Mm -hmm. I mean, they need to yeah. become some. The second big issue is they are, they're growing old. I mean, the, China is going to be the first country that will be uh, old before it becomes rich. And so they really need to accelerate their technological development in order to make that jump from the middle income trap as they want. And as, you know, I mean, the, the interesting thing with China, we have clear uh, targets, right? 2035, yep. uh, then 2050, etc. So that just tells you that they, they are in a hurry, uh, which um, I think will make them, uh, you know, uh, the ability to compromise will be very little. And so, so I do think that uh, one has to be, um, uh, you know, I, I, you know, in investing in China um, should obviously be part of everybody's portfolio, but in a very careful way, uh, because the, the the type of um, it 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 will be, uh, I think, a very nervous government over the next five to ten years, because of that key transition they have to go through, and the likelihood they, you know, they will get it wrong. Uh, and then, you know, how will the society react to this and stuff? What I do think is probably uh, more exciting is um, at the moment is if one wants to be in emerging market is be in the, in, in, the, in the big guys that have really been, not ignored, but like, you know, Brazil, yep. uh, India, um, uh, uh, very interesting markets and opportunities there. Almost going back to Jim's bricks. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, and, and, and by the way, I mean, now there is... Um, you know, there's really interesting opportunities uh, because of the friendshoring, right? It's like, you know, overall, I mean, even though, for example, Turkey, the politics are a mess. I mean, it's a NATO country. Yeah. And it's a country which just got the inflow of like 500,000 Russians, yeah. which are highly skilled uh, people. Uh, so, you know, that's, that, you know, there are some aspects which, uh, you know, uh, which I think I'm not saying, you know, for next year, but uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff. But again, you know, as I said before, it's, I, I think the last decade was beta. The next decade is alpha. So the last decade was passive beta. Mm -hmm. And the next decade, I think, will be alpha through uh, stock and country picking. And then um, with China, the market seems so focused on a Chinese reopening post their COVID lockdown. Is that a big thing for you or, or not really? Well, yeah, it's, a, it's obviously a big thing because uh, the guys clearly into this uh, 20th uh, party congress have been uh, prioritizing lockdown and safety over economic growth and obviously if we look and remember the sell-off that happened once we saw the uh, seven guys yeah. walk out uh, that there was a clear bias towards loyalty and politics and all the economic economic experts had been um, taken out so so it is uh, important that it seems that you know uh, the concept of reopening i have to, to warn a bit it's not going to be fast because, I mean, if we look at, at uh, you know, um, a city-state like Hong Kong, well, city, like Hong Kong, 
which, which got overwhelmed by Omicron in January this year. Uh, uh, you know, I think, what is it, 7 million people, and I think 10,000 died. If you apply the same ratio to China, 1.4 billion, that's a hell of a lot of mm. that. And yeah. it's, it's somewhere between yeah. 1 and 2 million. And so um, even if you want to pursue reopening, given the low level of vaccinations or, or the ineffectual way of the vaccines, I mean, it's not, some, it's not just some magic switch, which we tend to a little bit forget because obviously by now we're all fine. Uh, yeah. So reopening is good, but, uh, but um, it's also actually very dangerous for the government. I mean, as we can see, uh, there was a thing, I put this in my last Macro Eagle, uh, the Marquise de Lafayette, uh, the Lafayette um, said the most dangerous time for an autocratic government is, um, is when it starts reform. And, uh, and I find it actually fascinating that the protests started after the government passed the 20-point plan about uh, medical reopening. And you really wonder, like, what was it that triggered those protests? Was it really that fire in Xinjiang? Was it that the reopening plan? Or actually, was it just watching the World Cup and seeing us all sitting there without masks, right? Yeah, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And then if we can maybe uh, turn our focus to energy and obviously energy security. I mean, what's your sort of view of, f of fossil fuels and, and how the world does transition to a more greener energy source? No, the transition is obviously very important, but as we can see, I mean, the, the, it was uh, very dangerous to not have properly planned this. Uh, we see obviously, you know, prime example being Germany, mm -hmm. but, uh, but uh, I think the implications are that we need to clearly um, have uh, reliability and, as I said, um, resilience in the system. And if you think about it, uh, very simply said, I mean, if you look at Europe, for example, as a great example how naive we have been, is energy is flowing from east to west. Um, actually, Spain has like six LNG ports, but there's not a single pipe going from Spain to Germany. Uh, and for, for years, this has been you know, blocked by the French for whichever reasons, or if the Germans want to buy electricity, they can buy it from EDF, which is you know, utter. So the thing is, I think this, this, this and this is why I'm you know, uh, bullish Europe, is that the, a lot of the naivety has been taken out now in terms of, okay, we need to fix this. So I think energy now is going to clearly more flow from west to east. It's going to flow north-south and south-north. Um, that creates a lot of investment opportunities, obviously. It's like, you know, in theory, makes obviously North Africa way more important now for Europe than it used to be. Uh, uh, makes also the northern oil fields uh, way more important. And, uh, and uh, so overall, I think, yes, uh, the, 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 the energy transition will be, have to be way more realistic now of how do we really get there. Uh, rather than just the simplistic, you know, throwing around slogans and, uh, and, and, and you saw a lot, I think, I have to say, you know, it's in, whenever I say that there has been a lot of capital misallocation because of ESG labels, people always say, oh, that's greenwashing. I said, no, no, it's not greenwashing. It's like really people who, they, they really want to do good. But to be honest, if you suddenly get, I don't know, a billion dollars for an ESG fund, I mean, there yeah. is no, you know, the real uh, innovation in ESG space is mainly happening in the SME space where you can't invest that money in SMEs. So they all end up buying Tesla and Microsoft and okay, that's not ESG. And so, um, so and again, you know, go back to our defense point before, 
I think yep. it'll be very different, very, very exciting uh, uh, t- time ahead. So as my regular listeners will know, I like to close with three questions, Bobby. If I can take one at a time, your greatest inspiration or mentor? Um, I've always have been a, a very keen reader of history. Um, and uh, and historically always, um, I mean, growing up in South America, obviously, you know, always very interested by both, uh, you know, German and the Spanish uh, history and, and the South American. Uh, uh, always a big fan of, of uh, po- uh, uh, I would say, politics, obviously military. But then I came across Kissinger, Henry Kissinger, and I just found it brilliant, his first big book, which was called Diplomacy, because it actually only dealt with the political part and the, and the dealing within. So that book stops when there is a war because there's nothing to, you know, for diplomacy, I need more to do. And I just found that fascinating because before I was always just reading about conflict and how that got solved. So Henry Kissinger is by far, uh, I would say, one of my uh, key inspirations. Um, and, uh, and that's why also, you know, his, his books, especially Diplomacy and World Order, where really the most, uh, I would say, uh, yeah, uh, I, I would recommend everybody to read them. Fantastic. So that obviously therefore answers the second question, which you've been very well prepped for, obviously, <laughs> um, a book that inspired you. So I guess they would be the, the two. Yeah, I think the, the uh, you know, the books by Kissinger, or these two are, are, are you know, have definitely um, framed my, my big picture thinking, because he definitely explains trends in a, in a very big picture way. And then finally, Bobby, what piece of advice would you give to a young person starting their career to follow in your footsteps? No, I think the, the I'm obviously, you know, for me, I think my career reflects a bit almost trading or investment in public markets, which is, you know, there will be ups and downs, you know, cut your losses fast, ride your winners, don't take things too personal, uh, 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 you know, d- uh, recover fast from, from losses, sometimes also take a quick break, you know, don't, don't get overexcited by things. So I think the important thing is, um, you know, uh, you know, as the cliché s- says, you know, do something that you want to do, not what others tell you to do or what you think others might think that is great. I, in my career, I have to say, I, I think I always did well by picking something I wanted to do because then you do it well. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and again, you know, there will be setbacks um, that, that, uh, that I think the key thing is to recover fast from them, not take anything too personal. Uh, work hard on things. Be be very very curious, uh, and uh, and uh, and I think everything else comes with it. And then if you whichever path you choose, be it finance or whatever, um, for me it was very interesting. You know, it's uh, it's uh, I started off actually I didn't even know about the existence of finance. Uh, I started off uh, during my studies doing a lot of internships, and uh, and by doing those internships, uh, one of them was uh, I you know stumbled across a trading floor in uh, in London. Uh, the reason I had taken that job is because I think they were paying fifty quid a month mm-hmm. uh, or something, which I thought was brilliant money. Yeah. But then I saw the trading floor and I was like, oh my god, that's that's where I want to be. And so what I would really suggest, especially to students, is try to work during uh, get work experience um, to because I do think we will recognize something that 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 we really like and uh, and it was definitely worth it. And and I didn't even know trading floor existed to be honest. Great advice. And then how can listeners get in touch with you? Well, probably the easiest if they are interested, probably if they're listening to this podcast or if they're interested in financial markets, the easiest one is to get probably on the Macro Eagle uh, newsletter. Uh, uh, it's, uh, and they're just uh, send an email to info at macroeagle.com. Bobby, thank you very much. It's been great fun today. Thank you very much, guys. It was a pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to Different Perspective, a Zeus podcast. If you'd like to feature on the podcast or get in touch, you can contact me on live at zeuscapital.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.